Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and around the world on Arutz Sheva, Israel National News slash Radio. And thanks for joining us. A couple weeks off the air, Shlomo Karbach Yartzite, as well as Thanksgiving. That is the traditional pause that the country takes to contemplate the results of the election. Well, we do some other stuff. And this year was particularly interesting. I read all these stories of people not wanting to go home for Thanksgiving because of the fear of uncomfortable political discussion, which is, uh, I guess, one of those unfortunate postscripts to this election, which was quite divisive when it occurred and has been somewhat divisive in the aftermath. But, you know, as I said before the election and say again, the Republican doors, we are all Americans, at least sitting here. Apologies to those who are might be elsewhere, but we are all Americans and the country it comes first. Put the country ahead. Think about the fact that in the end, we have a system that has endured good and bad for so, for to over 200 years and it is still i believe a beacon of light around the world it is still the best form of government that has been created by man so with god's help we will continue we will endure and as for well, as for what's going on out there uh, in the political world, this is transition time, and some are transitioning better than others. In the end, everybody is transitioning, even though there's an official transition. There's the Donald Trump transition. There's presidential transition. But there's transitioning going on. There's new realities after Election Day in many situations. The U.S. Senate needs to adjust to new numbers, some new leadership, the U.S. House needs to adjust to some new dynamics as well. And some are transitioning and some are not. Uh, yesterday, in the House Democrats, they reelected their leadership team. That is three Congress people who are in their mid to late. So I don't know when the mid number comes. Nancy uh, Pelosi, 77 years old. I'm sorry, Nancy Pelosi, 76 years old. Stanny Hoyer, 77 years old. James Clyburn, 76 years old. I guess 76 is really mid. The 77 is kind of also mid-70s, or is that is that high 70s? Well, the point here is that the Democrats kept their team in place, but not without some discord, not with some, without some challenge, a backbencher. And that's really somebody who is not a big player, not a member of the political leadership, not a member of the uh, committee chair or a ranking member. Uh, Tim Ryan of Youngstown, Ohio. Youngstown always being the epicenter of American political politics in many different ways, uh, particularly in this election, I would say. But Youngstown... Uh, being uh, southeast of Cleveland on that I-80 corridor. If you're driving from Cleveland or if you're driving from Cleveland to New York, that's uh, 
you pass in Youngstown towards the border with Pennsylvania. Youngstown, long been a Democratic stronghold, working white class, uh, sorry, working class whites. And Youngstown went heavily for Trump this time around. And Representative Tim Ryan, who represents the area, said that the Democratic Party needed a wake-up call about the fact that they were not, that a party that is catering essentially to the two coasts and not talking to fly over America was not going to win, was going to have problems. So he challenged Nancy Pelosi, who is known to rule with an iron fist. Uh, if M Margaret Thatcher was the iron lady, Nancy Pelosi is the iron leader. And she has been the minority leader or majority leader or speaker, as it were, in the House for, oh, I'd say, what, 15 years since uh, maybe 2010. During that time, the Democrats, not sorry, not 2010, I think 2000, well, we'll get that number in a second, but um, maybe 2004, 2002, it's been quite some time. Anyway, uh, 2010, she over, she oversaw the loss, if you recall, a huge loss, a huge slacking. That was the Obama's first midterm. Democrats lost 63 seats and the majority. The Democrats have only seen losses over the last couple terms. I mean, yes, they won a couple seats, but the expectation here, the expectation in this election was that the Democrats in the House were going to at least make it significantly closer than it was. The expectation is, on, in many, at least in, if you believed the DCCC rhetoric, the, that's the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, is that they were going to take the House in this election. This was going to be the perfect storm for them. And yet they failed to do that. And it's not easy being a minority member. I mean, we all think that, yeah, you know, you go to Congress, you're a congressperson, and it's and you get all the perks and the. But being in the minority in any house is a is a much more difficult existence because it's very much more difficult to get anything done and much more difficult to accomplish anything with legislation. You just don't have the influence that you would have as a majority member. So many of the Democratic backbenchers. Uh, are in the House were in open revolt, essentially, against Nancy Pelosi. Now, of course, it's a secret ballot, so it's not openly revolt, but a full one-third of the Democrats in the United States House voted against their leadership. So that vote was 134 to 63 for Tim Ryan. And Tim Ryan, as I said, not a gentleman with a lot of profile. Now, Tim Ryan could afford to go ahead and mount this challenge. Usually, if you if you try and slay the king or the queen, as it were, your next ticket and you lose, well, you know, you usually have to leave town because uh, they're coming after you. But rumor has it that Tim Ryan wants to run for governor of Ohio, and this is a good platform for him to do that. Certainly running against the cultural elites, the country elites in New York and San Francisco puts – puts Tim Ryan on a good footing for the white working class voters, of which there are many in Ohio. And, you know, I think that's one of the dilemmas of the the Democratic Party has right now with regard to flyover America. They're just not speaking to people in, you know, they're doing very well on the coasts. And that was certainly the reason that Hillary Clinton 
won the popular vote, I think right now by more than 2 million votes. Um, of course, Donald Trump doesn't seem to not want to acknowledge that, but that's a different story. I want to, you know, I'm not going to get into that as far as what his foibles are and why he seem, can't seem to handle you, you. You run, from my point of view, you won the race to win. He did that. They they accomplished that. And whether or not the popular vote, I mean, yes, it's mandate this, mandate that. You put together a government, we move on. Uh, you want to knock the Electoral College? Fine. But that has no bearing on 2016. You know, Maybe that's something, a discussion in the future. Nothing to do right now. But no reason to then claim that you actually won the popular vote. I didn't understand that tweet at all. It still doesn't make any sense. And if you want to invite the fact that there was fraud, well, then you're essentially inviting people to go ahead and conduct a feudal recount, which doesn't seem to have any fruit at all. This is just you know more political machinations, more fundraising. We see the, the idea here is that people will do anything to raise a couple bucks. And even the most outlandish things in politics, that's what the system has become. Let's do things that are particularly crazy. Let's throw some red meat out there to our base. We'll, th- we'll raise some money in order to do that, even if there is no tachlis, as it were, in order to do that. So let's just talk about transitions. And it seems that the that the Democrats have essentially decided not to transition. I mean, the profile of the Democratic Party in Congress right now is Nancy Pelosi from San Francisco as the leader in the House. Steny Hoyer, who is from Maryland, as the number two. And Chuck Schumer as the that's the number two in the House. As the as the Chuck Schumer of New York, of Brooklyn, of course, our own Chuck Schumer as the Senate minority leader. He had certainly hoped to be majority leader and had probably expected to be majority leader. Uh, come November 9th, that was not to be. Um, so that's the profile. It's like a New York-San Francisco party. And, you know, will there be any lessons from that? It is unclear. Now, what about the lessons on the Republican side? There are probably many, and we're still going to see that shakeout as it comes. There's a lot of positions left to be filled. There is a lot of, you know, who will head the Republican National Committee. There are, will that be somebody from the well, let's say more populist wing. Will it be a Steve Bannon type guy? I mean, we can, you know, we can make a little bit of that Talmudic, uh, a little bit of that Talmudic differentiation here between two types of picks from a Trump perspective. It is a Steve Bannon person or a Reince Priebus person because, you know, Trump has himself installed this, um, has installed this, uh, two-headed leadership within the White House. Uh, Steve Bannon as President's Counselor, Reince Priebus as Chief of Staff. Usually the Chief of Staff is the most powerful person, but Trump has says that Bannon will be co-equal with him. And so is it the more Steve Bannon type or is it the more establishment Reince Priebus type? So far, many of the picks, at least from my perspective in the transition, have been more of the establishment types. Well, at least people that make the step that please the establishment that don't anger that don't make the establishment nervous and i think that maybe aside from general flynn i think he has as national security advisor um you know some issues there but generally a lot of people are feeling well you know trump might actually appoint a lot of good people now certainly he's appointing a lot of wealthy people 
And it's really, uh, it's really interesting when you look at the net worth. We don't know everybody's net worth, but you know, um, uh, DeVos has uh, education secretary. That's certainly a, a pleaser for for the, us in the Orthodox community. Um, and get to that in a second. Uh, we'll we'll talk about that a little bit a little bit deeper. But uh, Wilbur Ross um, certainly not a populist. I mean, Wilbur Ross has made millions, if not billions, on exporting middle-class jobs to Mexico, which seems to be entirely what uh, Donald Trump is again. Now he has saved some jobs in some of the companies, but Wilbur Ross buys distressed companies and has, uh, and you know is able to reposition them and you know, redo the assets and if it makes, means offshoring some of their jobs and closing some of their plants, that's what he does. Um, it's not really in tune with the Trump message, uh, he also was on TV saying tariffs are a last resort with regard to jobs going to Mexico or China. You know, we're not necessarily going to slap tariffs on everybody, which, of course, once again, I'm not sure how much that goes with the populist message. Steve Mnuchin, Goldman Sachs. Well, Steve Bannon also came from Goldman Sachs, but I think they're a little bit different. Um, there are a number of other Goldman Sachs people that are potentially under consideration. I have nothing against Goldman Sachs. This is not an anti-Goldman Sachs thing, but Donald Trump did campaign against Goldman Sachs. So there is rumors that Gary Cohn is the president, the number two man at Goldman Sachs, is going to get a significant position within the new government. Uh, you know, Goldman Sachs was specifically was specifically identified as a villain. Lloyd Blankfein, a picture of Lloyd Blankfein appeared in that final Trump commercial, which I thought was a well, it was a good commercial, but you know, my mind had clearly anti-Semitic overtones of Jews controlling the banks and Jews controlling the world. Um, it really was a little bit, I thought, a little bit over the top. But go after Goldman Sachs for so many months, and they're a great boogeyman, and then you bring Goldman Sachs people into the government. It is itself, uh, well, it's an interesting, so interesting phenomenon and it definitely bears mentioning is you know kind of what direction is trump headed with this and of course now we have this i mean steve mnuchin just go just to go back for a second during the depths of the financial crisis and you know i isn't this is an american this is an american thing this is not a criticism at all this is just a fact uh, he bought a distressed bank called indymac repositioned it but IndyMac was one of the banks that pushed, that engaged in shoddy, or at least was identified by authorities as engaging in shoddy foreclosure practices and pushing many Americans out of their homes. So, you know, that was how Mnuchin made tens of millions of dollars on the misery and misfortune of many middle-class Americans, uh, as did Wilbur Ross, as I said. Again, Somebody, in many cases, they, they certainly didn't create the financial crisis. And nobody is, I don't think anybody is going to accuse and say Steve Mnuchin was responsible for the economic downturn of 2008, 2009. But certainly, I think by all accounts, uh, he had great opportunity there and was able to profit off of it. That is not necessarily in concert with the populist message that Donald Trump has ta talked about, particularly towards the end of the campaign, about sending a message to the 1%, about sending a message to 
the elites on Wall Street. Uh, these guys are the elites on Wall Street. These guys are, they do represent that approach that there's one rule for everybody else and there's one rule for the elites and nobody's accusing them of having done anything wrong. Just keep in mind that these are very significant positions, very influential positions going to people that presumably Donald Trump has campaigned against for so many months and campaigned successfully against. And, you know, that message for for Trump was very powerful. Now, as far as, you know, some of the other picks, Nikki Haley, a very positive uh, pick, although, you know, don't doesn't necessarily have the um, doesn't necessarily have the foreign policy chops as it will to be UN ambassador, but people can usually figure out the uh, the situation in the UN pretty well. And I truthfully would rather have a strong uh, voice at the UN than somebody who is a more diplomatic voice. So I think that so far that that's a, that that's an excellent pick. As I said, Betty DeVos is going to be a, a billionaire from Michigan who is president of the American Federation for Children and has been a known school choice activist for those who are the education active uh, education activists. Uh, she is a excellent choice. Now she's not a teacher. She doesn't come from the educational establishment. That is great. Uh, no question about that. I think that you want to have somebody who, particularly in the education side, who can create, uh, who can, who is interested in moving the education establishment more towards a business and. Moving, I mean, it's the one sector of our economy that just has really just operates totally independent of any business principles. And if we're looking at school choice as now the federal government can't actually implement school choice in many jurisdictions. They really only can in the District of Columbia, which which has been done in the past. But they can incentivize states to implement school choice programs. They can incentivize states to help charter schools and private schools and private education. And the bottom line is I believe the government is responsible for the education of all children, not just those that attend public school. And there are many ways in which the, ed the education establishment just looks at its mandate as to help public school. So we will see in New York it's, it's always a challenge um, you might see a renewed fight or even more of a fight against any in New York in particular against any type of aid or any type of assistance to, to the public, to the private schools, to the private school community. And we've made some gains over the last couple of years, uh, here in New York, there've been gains in New Jersey. There've been gains in a lot of different places. Now we might see some backlash against that, but having an education secretary who is firmly pro uh, yeshiva education, who's firmly pro-private education, can only be a boon for us. So from my point of view, this is by far the most important pick for us, for our community, for the Orthodox community, for the Jewish community, for Jewish education. And it's a really, it's a really strong pick, and it's a really great pick, and it's a really shake-up pick. If you want to shake up Washington, as Donald Trump has promised, this is the type of pick that shakes things up. And uh, this is uh, something that should be applauded. It would be fan absolutely fantastic if this 
um, if this agenda moves forward and can influence school choice and school choice programs in many different states. As I said, education is really the province of the states, but can we accomplish something through federal incentives? No Child Left Behind had uh, tremendous impact, as well as some of the, uh, even in the Obama, um, now that impacts uh, good and bad, but Obama's incentives towards charter schools also were very, very powerful and really pushed through financial incentives, pushed New York State to uh, to add uh, charter school options. So we shall see on that front as to what happens with regard to uh, – so a lot of interesting notes from the transition, a lot of interesting notes right now as far as you know which way Trump is going. But the one thing is for certain that Donald Trump will not cease to entertain us with the transition. Just look what's going on with the Secretary of State. I'm arguably the most important position in the cabinet, the most prominent candidate, the face of America worldwide. And we are having this apprentice-like or this survivor-like, however you want to term it, approach to picking the Secretary of State. The conventional wisdom says there are four candidates. Rudy Giuliani, who's been out there for quite some time and has been publicly talking about how he wants it. David Petraeus, who's definitely met with Trump and has been a uh, has been certainly would be a uh, establishment type choice, having headed the CIA, having been a four star general. Uh, however, has that little hiccup as the fact that he pled guilty to sharing classified information. That's a little bit Clinton esque, if you will. Uh, Foreign Relations Committee Chairman Bob Corker of Tennessee, and uh, you know I I think Corker would be a great choice. The only problem I have with Corker is I think that strategically he killed the opportunity to fight the Iran deal. But that's a story for a different time. And Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney seems to still be in the mix, despite the fact that Kellyanne Conway, Trump's campaign manager, publicly campaigned against him and said that the people, that the base will go nuts if Mitt Romney is picked. Now, I'm sure that's overblown because I think that where else is the base going to go? And are they going to do it over Mitt Romney? But does Mitt Romney fit the profile of Secretary of State? It's kind of interesting, given if he would succeed John Kerry as a Massachusetts, a former Massachusetts rival. Um, and but Mitt Romney could, you know, as far as government service, that's something that obviously speaks to him and is important to him. Just the way this is happening publicly, the way that these names are thrown out there for the for the public and the Twitterverse and the and the punditry and the intelligentsia to kind of play around with over and over is is quite is quite remarkable i don't recall a transition of this usually the, everything is kept under wraps it's very kept we don't see a lot of pictures we don't see people coming and going and that's what's going on here which is quite which is definitely quite interesting you know that trump just wants to dominate the headlines every single day which he does he does it successfully it's quite remarkable how he continues just with the small minor things to go ahead and continue to dominate the headlines. He's still tweeting, and he's still entertaining us, which is, I think, also what a lot of people like, a lot of Americans want. So let's talk about what I think is right now Trump's biggest liability. I mean, I think that we thought that the liability might be the fact that, well, he's going to have a difficulty getting good people to serve in the administration. That doesn't seem to be the case. People seem to be willing to come into the administration. They seem to be willing to, and he seems to have certainly moderated his tone in so many ways that it's more comfortable for people to come, for establishment folks to go ahead and want to join the administration. The one thing I think it's interesting right now is the dealing with the conflict of interests. 
that are myriad. They're huge. They're all over the place, as big as his business, as big as his personality is, is the opportunity for conflict. And yes, Trump says that there can't be conflicts. He can't have a conflict of interest. But there are, when you, especially when you do business abroad, there are so many opportunities to have issues. And I don't know whether Trump is fully cognizant of them or the family is fully cognizant of them, but they would seem to be immense. And, you know, one thing you don't want to do is be mired in congressional investigations over and over and over uh, as far as and that could happen. I mean, that's happened to presidents beforehand. But December 15th, Trump has scheduled a news conference with his kids to talk about how he is divesting himself from his business. Now, whether he can truly divest himself if his kids are still in charge is a question is something that we you know needs to be considered, but it is kind of unclear as to what might happen. So, look, a lot to be a lot to be digested. I'm sure by next week we're going to have more of the form of government. We're still going to understand where Trump is headed, where the country is headed, and as I said, it's a time for transition. Will uh, will the who will adjust to these new realities, as it were? And you know what will Trump find with regards to Congress uh, when you have some ideas of his that are not necessarily in tune with Republican orthodoxies? Will the Republicans in Congress go along with them and then potentially face the wrath of voters in uh, in their base in more of a base election in 2018? That remains to be seen. But speaking of conflicts of interest, I do want to get back to the hyperlocal situation here. And this, uh, I want to focus on one of our favorite subjects, which is Mayor Bill de Blasio of New York. And a just, I think, incredible story coming out of City Hall with regard to what Bill de Blasio, Mayor de Blasio, has called agents of the city. And these are five people who are paid consultants, paid political consultants, who essentially have had a – who also represent private interests. And they have essentially had a seat at the table in many – according to emails that have been released, which the de Blasio administration fought tooth and nail in court to have prevent release of these emails. The – have had a seat at the table or at least been on correspondence for some very significant decision-making. Essentially, one of them has represented real estate developers and has those clients, but is also in the discussions within the administration and part and parcel of the discussions with regard to housing policy, affordable housing policy, development policy. It's just incredible when you think about it, the degree to which de Blasio, also a populist, also somebody who, who ran out a populist message, was essentially in bed, literally in bed with, with lobbyists. Now, technically, some of these, these people are not lobbyists. They're communications professionals, and you know there is a distinction. I, I think there is a dis- distinction with a difference. I don't want to be uh, – I think that there is def- something very different from what some of these guys do in, in, other than that. But – in the case, if you have a client who has an interest, distinct interest in this decision-making, you should not be sitting at the government policy table. You can get information, but you shouldn't be part of that discussion. I think that's just, that's just an incredible conflict. Now, it's an incredible conflict of interest for City Hall. That's an incredible conflict of interest for the mayor and to have some of these people sitting at the table. I'm fully aware of what the mayor's need or any politician's need to get sage strategic advice from his advisors. But some of them have to come in-house. There is a difference. There is a fine line between being in-house, being between part of the government, and being outside the government structure. And that seems to be totally lost here 
on the de Blasio administration and just the degree or I guess the blind spot. Maybe it's not a blind spot. Maybe they're just aware of it and they're just upset that they got caught. But I'll be I'll be charitable and say that this is just an incredible blind spot. And you see this blind spot with regard to conflicts of interest on the right, on the left. It's not a Republican issue. It's not a Democratic issue. It is a governmental approach that people in government sometimes have that they just don't see the conflicts that can arise because, you know, you assume that everybody is going to be uh, on the up and up. Yeah, we always say that everybody is on the up and up until they're not. And it doesn't take that much for somebody to kind of represent their client in, in the right way. So really, I would say is that what the public expects is that government professionals, those who don't have those conflicts, be the ones in the decision making capacity that they not be privy to information that doesn't that doesn't go to other people. And that is called corruption, essentially. So as we close, I just want to, number one, give kudos to the president and the vice president-elect for saving those carrier jobs in Indiana. Uh, That's going to be a tough haul going ahead and saving uh, jobs a thousand at a time. But I do want to close with a thought by by David Brooks of the New York Times, uh, conservative columnist David Brooks, although probably not a Trump conservative. Moreover, the future of this country is not to be found in protecting jobs that are long gone or in catering to the fears of aging whites. There is a raging need for a movement that embraces global dynamism, economic dynamism, global engagement, and social support that is part Milton Friedman on economic policy, Ronald Reagan on foreign policy, and Franklin Roosevelt on welfare policy. What Brooks is saying is that there are great ideas out there no matter where they come from, and we should borrow from all of them because America is a great country and we have a great future ahead. And we should continue to not be despondent over that and look forward. So thanks for another edition here of Spin Class. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs here on the Nachum Siegel Network.